Hi there, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast for students and recent graduates to help you with your applications and also to get you thinking about the current stories in the business world. As always, for this series, we're going to be joined by the wonderful author, Chris Stokes, who's written a couple of books on the city and commercial awareness, which are really the Bible for students and young professionals um, understanding the world of business in real simple terms. So I highly recommend you check them out. So for this week, what we're going to be covering for the first episode of this series is a record time for IPOs and the mergers and acquisitions market, the staff shortages that you'll be hearing about on the news and the stock problems you might see on the front pages of the business world, the new national insurance hike that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has recently announced, and how to dress in the office as we move into the new normal. All of this and more Let's get started. Hello there, Chris, and uh, welcome to this brand new series, the second series of Thinking Commercially. How are you getting on? How was your summer break? Oh, my summer was great. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm looking forward to this. So I think this series will be even better than the first. We hope we can uh, we can do some really good stuff this time. It is application season at the moment, so lots of stuff is opening up. You'll see it on uh, Bright Network. Um, but also a really good time to um, understand business. There's obviously been a lot of change over the last year and a half. We're here for this second series to give you all of the application advice that you need, support around your applications to get you thinking commercially for those. Ultimately, every company, whether you're going for a job in fashion, whether you're going for a job in investment banking or law, um, you'll need to have an understanding of the wider business world around you and be able to apply it to the companies or industries that you're um, applying into. But just generally, even if you're just starting in the world of work or or not even thinking about applications at the moment, it's a really important thing um, to stay um, in tune with the world around you. We hope you find it really interesting and engaging. Um, it's actually a really also good way to discover what you want to do. If there's certain stories which you're listening to and you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating. I want to read more into it. It's potential that uh, work in that sort of industry might be might be where you want to end up. So like last series, we are going to be covering uh, three key stories um, each month. We're going to be doing a little bit of analysis into it. We're going to be linking it back to what you need to know as students or recent graduates. Um, and then we're also going to cover one slightly more fun, slightly more novel story um, to end each podcast. And of course, like all other times, make sure you check us out on Instagram, on LinkedIn. We've got a LinkedIn group, which is uh, nice and active. Thank you very much if you've already um, subscribed to, to those. And also do reach out to ask your questions either through those channels. Uh, we take on questions and we're always looking for for different stories or users or uh, members' questions uh, to ensure that uh, we're covering the stories that you really want to hear. Chris, are you ready for the start of Series 2? I am, Ben. I'm all geared up. Perfect. Let's crack on with the first story. So for our first story of the week, we're going back to something that we have covered before in series one. Um, so if you listen to episodes there, you'll be able to find out a little bit more about it. Um, but it's definitely take on a bit of a new angle in the kind of recovery that we spoke about in the introduction. And so what we're going to be covering this week is IPOs or initial public offerings. And 
there's been some data recently that suggests that not only so far has it been a bumper year for companies taking their businesses public. So for the first time, they're offering it on the stock exchange, possibly with the want to raise some money at the same time as this. Um, but yeah, it looks like it's going to be a record year for IPOs. And um, we just want to kind of discover and discuss um, why this might be, why companies are so keen to go public, to raise more money, and why now is such an important time for that. Um, I think there was um, some uh, some data from Renaissance uh, that suggests that a uh, 375 deals uh, could be done in 2021 in, in IPOs, raising something like 100 billion uh, UK pounds or 125 billion uh, US uh, dollars, which is uh, such a huge, huge amount of, of money and would beat the uh, the 97 billion raised in around 2000 uh, during the uh, dot com boom, which I'm sure a lot of our a lot of our uh, listeners might not um, might not know a huge amount about. Some of them might not even be alive uh, for the uh, dot com boom, but definitely something interesting. Uh, looking at market trends and looking at uh, uh, what happened in the, in the past in terms of economic uh, economic activity. Um, so, Chris, I guess my first starting point is who is funding all of these IPO activities at the moment and why are they so popular? It's a great question, Ben. And um, uh, the way I look at these things, I try to make them as, as simple for me to understand as possible. And the thing about the financial markets is that all of the money comes from institutional investors. Uh, these are essentially um, pension funds, insurance companies, fund managers, and, and they get their money from us. So when you... When you're in employment, you pay in, into a, a pension plan. When you take out insurance, you, you pay a premium that the insurance company invests in the market. And, and if you've got savings, then you might put them with a fund manager to invest. So essentially, all of the money comes from, from us as, as people. Um, and institutional investors then, then deploy that money. A very interesting trend that this IPO activity seems to be reversing is that in recent times, over the last five years or so, there's been much less what's called public equity market activity. So that's to say companies listing on the stock exchange. And instead, what companies have been doing is they've been turning to private equity for funding. And private equity is exactly what it says it is. It's equity. So it's about shares, buying shares and businesses. But it's done privately. It's not done through a, a, a public listing on a stock exchange. The money has still come from institutional investors, but they've tended to put that money into private equity funds, which tend to be run by specialist private equity houses with names like uh, KKR and, and Cerberus and, 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 and so on, rather than putting that money into public markets. But the, the source of the money in all of these cases is the same. It's these institutional investors. So what you're saying is that private equity a few years back was where um, a lot of these institutional investors and lots of these companies were, were going for their money or to the institutional investors to fund uh, for their funds and also the companies to, to, to raise money. But now it's moving towards going public. Is that kind of more, is there a particular reason behind that? Or is that just more just a bit of a trend of the time? Because I know that IPOs tend to... Um, give you a bit of a boost in terms of uh, kind of marketing and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's quite a uh, big event, which uh, often gets covered by the financial press, FT, those sort of places. 
Yes, I think the reason for it is that uh, uh, with private equity, and I know we've talked about this in the past about unicorn businesses that are still privately held but have an apparent valuation of over a, a billion dollars. Uh, ultimately, private equity needs what's called an exit route. So uh, if you're a, a private equity fund, you've invested in, in lots of privately held businesses, sooner or later you're going to need to realize your investment. You're going to want to get the money that's invested in those businesses out. And there are only a limited number of ways of doing that. Well, one is to sell to another private equity fund. Uh, another is what's called a trade sale, where you sell the business to uh, an existing large business in, in the same sector. But the most popular way is by listing that business on a stock exchange, by doing, as you said, an IPO. So although over the last few years we've had a concentration of, of private equity funding, Sooner or later, there has to be a point at which they want to get their money out. And so these, a lot of these businesses, the majority, do tend to become public companies. And that's how private equity realizes its investment by listing these businesses that it's owned on, on uh, public equity markets, on, on stock exchanges. I guess there's a bit of a, a long-term lag then. If more people, if private equity has become more popular a few years back, then is more likely to become more IPOs because obviously they add the rocket fuel that possibly private equity companies will be able to. Um, but then a few years down the line, maybe somewhere between three and 10 years, um, an IPO will become more likely because as you say, these private equity firms can get good value investing early and then um, realize when they sell uh, on the public, uh, public exchanges. That's exactly right, because uh, it's a kind of risk-return profile. The, the earlier you invest, the greater return you're likely to make, but also the higher risk that the business you've invested in is, is, is not going to make it and is going to go bust. But I can't help feeling at the same time, and this is more a feeling than a matter of fact, that the pandemic has had something to do with this. It all feels a bit counterintuitive, the way the markets are at the moment. They're, they're very buoyant, and that's because they look ahead to the future uh, and, and they can see that we're uh, emerging post-pandemic. So they're kind of anticipating the, um, the success that businesses will have when, when they, they get back on stream. Um, and so I can't help feeling that the, the pandemic has kind of uh, suppressed uh, financial activity over the last couple of years. And this is a slightly exuberant reaction to that, having so many businesses that want to go public. And actually, it's also because a lot of businesses need the money. You know, they, they, they do need the equity funding. And this is a, a very good time at which to tap the public markets because these institutional investors have so much cash to invest. Uh, one thing that I, that I think is quite important in understanding this is that there is what's called a, a, a wall of money with all of us as individuals contributing in these various ways to institutional investors' uh, 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 funds well, to, to their coffers. They, they always have a lot of money on an ongoing basis that they need to invest. And if they don't invest that money, that money builds up. Uh, in private equity terms, it's often called dry powder, meaning this is money that they have to put into businesses. But again, because over the last two years, we've had a suppression of this sort of financial activity, there is actually a lot of money out there ready to be deployed into the markets and doing it by way of IPOs is just one of the ways in. And another thing, which is uh, 
different, but I guess linked and possibly linked to the same reason of a lot of money out there, especially for businesses having a lot of money and possibly looking to diversify post-pandemic or even um, shore up their business uh, post-pandemic is the amount of M&A activity as well. So mergers and acquisitions, basically companies taking over uh, uh, other companies. Um, again, that is having a huge renaissance this year. Well, I think it's a, a record record year after a, a bit of a turbulent year as, uh, as possibly expected in 2020. Um, but do you feel that's um, driven by similar sort of reasons that the pandemic has you know, maybe uh, push demand to now when it's recovering, but also I guess businesses maybe feeling not as secure within themselves in the modern world and looking around them and thinking, actually, we can really fuel growth in a number of areas, but we need to uh, acquire competitors, people in slightly different markets um, to ensure that we're prosperous into this kind of new normal. I think, Ben, that's absolutely right. In, in my own mind, I do link IPO activity and M&A activity, because they both involve publicly listed companies. M&A can be applied to private companies, but generally speaking, it's a term that's used to describe the acquisition of, of public companies. And, and a lot of M&A activity in the past has been funded by private equity, private equity funds taking big public companies private and then uh, uh, stripping out costs, dismembering them, relisting them. So definitely in my own mind, IPOs and M&As are connected. And, and the term corporate finance in the financial markets is used to, to describe activity that straddles both. So, so a, a bank or a lawyer or accountant who says they work in corporate finance, it tends to mean they work on both IPOs and, and, and M&As. But I think the reason for the, the upsurge in M&A activity is possibly more directly linked to the pandemic because uh, valuations have been depressed. I mean, one, one of the things the market commentators are saying at the moment is that the UK market, uh, because it's been overshadowed by Brexit over the last five years, it's actually much cheaper. This is the term they use. It's much cheaper than other markets, which is why we're seeing, um, uh, for example, Morrison's, the, the, private, the US private equity interest in, in Morrison's, the supermarket. There are many, many other UK companies which are likely to be bid for because they're regarded as, as good value. And at the same time, in markets like Japan, you've got companies which are labeled zombie companies, which have been managing to trade on, even though their prospects are really very poor. And um, uh, those are examples of companies that are likely to be taken over because however depressed a business is, in somebody else's hands, uh, the, the, the underlying value can be realized and it can be turned into something better or merged with something else to be turned into something better. So I, I think the pandemic has highlighted the number of businesses that are out there that are ripe for takeover. But I absolutely link in my own mind M&A activity and IPO activity. One other thing I just really quickly want to, to ask you about is that my sense is obviously you talked about the five years um, since uh, uh, the UK vo uh, voted to, to leave the EU in the, in some actually yeah summer 2016, um, obviously that had an impact on the value of the pound compared to foreign currencies. So surely it makes it a little bit cheaper for um, foreign foreign companies to. Um, to buy English companies because when when I was younger, I think I went to to America when I was about fourteen or something like that, and one pound was worth uh, two 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 dollars twenty cents or something like that, and now it's worth 
140 something like that at, at the moment and so if you flip that and actually it's, it comes a lot cheaper you don't need two dollars 20 to for one pound you only need one one dollar 40 so that must have an impact on it as well right it's had a huge impact because um what financial markets did looking at the, the uk during and, and and post-brexit was think well maybe its economic prospects are not going to be as good and and that means they tend to sell the currency so that depresses sterling which actually is good news for uk companies that export and a lot of our uk companies do export because it means that our exports are that much cheaper to to uh, buyers in in other countries. And yes, you're right. There's a kind of double whammy because you're getting the benefit of of, the, of weakened sterling of the weak pound compared to other currencies to make UK companies that much cheaper to buy anyway. And that's contributing to this activity. And possibly the, the last thing to, to say on this particular aspect of it is that the UK is a very open market. Um, there have been uh, talks recently about uh, the extent to which government should step in and, and, and stop takeovers. For instance, ARM, arm the technology business, which, which is changing hands at the moment. There's a question about whether it, it should be bought by NVIDIA, which has, has, has bid for it. But on the whole, the UK is an open market. Uh, we're not terribly fussed about who owns these businesses, as long as the businesses themselves are pretty vibrant. And that means you do get a lot of M&A activity in the UK anyway. Amazing. I think we could probably cover a whole 55 minutes on this, um, but I think we'll leave it there for now. I think we've covered so much interesting stuff and I think what a fantastic way to kick off the the second series with uh, lots of fantastic knowledge and so pertinent to what's going on at the moment and the understanding of how uh, how, how we're recovering um, post-pandemic or, or as we're moving out of the pandemic. Um, but I think we'll leave it there for that story. Chris, it was really pertinent that you picked up on exports, imports at the end of the last story, because the second story this week we're covering is staff shortages and stock problems. If you picked up a newspaper or read any business stories over the last few weeks, I am almost certain you would have seen um, certain headlines about how um, we're struggling to employ um, lorry drivers at the moment getting stock um, in and out of the UK, um, and then some slightly more... Um, uh, ridiculous stories from how we're possibly going to be short of pigs in blankets at Christmas time uh, and other maybe more 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 pressing problems in terms of uh, in terms of getting um, imports into the UK and making sure that we're we're able to uh, drive business forward and drive the um, recovery forward. Um, there's a lot uh, in this in this story, but I think it ultimately uh, boils down to problems possibly caused again a little bit by Brexit, as we've sort of discussed in the previous story, but more personally by the pandemic and an absolute surge in demand, but also a recovery which isn't sort of a smooth line. Obviously, as we've moved out of the pandemic, there's been signs where economic activities really picked up and then it's dipped a little bit based on going into lockdowns, restrictions, opening, lifting, and then going back a little bit, um, but also lots of the uncertainty about what's going to happen next. Even in the last few days, um, the Prime Minister's talked about um, potential sort of plans for winter as well, and um, it not being kind of complete plain sailing, despite the fact uh, with the large rates of, of, of vaccine. Um, but I guess 
my starting question for you, uh, Chris, is um, why are supply chains running into so many problems at the moment? We've got a, a shortage of about 100,000 drivers or lorry drivers in the in the UK. We've got staff shortages in hospitality, which is well documented. Um, businesses are sometimes having to even shut. Nando's had to close for lack of chicken. Um, but other businesses are struggling with their output because they're struggling to get the supplies in across manufacturers. So what's what's going wrong at the moment in your mind? Well, I think the first thing to say is that this is short term. The media always have to have things to write about and they always like to make them sound as cataclysmic as possible. So, so uh, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the end of the world is nigh. But th- this is a short term issue. I think it's been caused by a confluence of events. So various things coming together. One of the things that I think is very interesting is that um, supply chains, so how stuff gets from where it's made to, to where it's consumed, these days are, are very flexible and very sophisticated. And businesses tend not to carry the same levels of stock that they used to in, in the distant past. And the reason for that is because it's expensive. If you're a car manufacturer and you've got 30,000 uh, built cars standing in car parks around your factory. That's 30,000 cars worth of money that is, is tied up. So it was actually in the, the car manufacturing industry many, many decades ago that they introduced just-in-time supply. So you only bring in the, the raw, com- raw materials or components that you need to make a car just at the point where the car is being assembled. And then what car manufacturers have moved towards doing is, is um, only making cars to order. And there are a lot of businesses that, that do this now. So what one of the reasons for this uh, supply chain shortage at the moment is because businesses in the run up to the pandemic, when they could see how bad the pandemic would be, they just cut down production. And that's why we've got a semiconductor shortage, because semiconductor producers assumed that during the pandemic, demand would be much lower, so they didn't make as many. So now that demand is back, there is a a short-term shortage, and and that applies to goods, but also it it applies to to, to people. So I think one of the reasons uh, that there is a Brexit impact, I I have no doubt, in terms of of, um, some of the workforce that we drew upon no longer being in the UK, but also I think furloughs had an effect, because furloughs actually prevented people from changing jobs as often as they would have in the past because if you change jobs uh, the employer and employee lose the furlough benefit so once once furlough is phased out and we're just on the point of it's being phased out I think we'll see much more mobility in the labor market and, and that's a good thing because it means people can can move from uh, jobs where they may not want to be at the moment to jobs where they do want to be. So uh, I, I think uh, in fairly short order, we'll see these shortages made up. Just in general, in terms of sort of supply chains and um, I guess like manufacturers as well, a lot of people potentially um, won't be going, listen to podcasts, won't be going to direct manufacturing jobs, but we're working in companies where logistics, supply chain, um, and everything like that is so, so important. But why more generally is this important to commercial awareness? Well, I think that's a really good question because to my mind, commercial awareness is having a, a basic understanding of, of how the world, and, and not just the commercial world, but, but for example, um, government and public sector, how, how these work, especially from a a financial point of view. So how 
taxation works to, to fund services that we have. And uh, you, you'll know with me, I, I, I try to make things simple so that I can understand them. And so to my mind, when, when I think of a supply chain, I think of the different components within it. So you've got the, the, the sourcing of the raw material, you've got the manufacturing of that raw material into a finished product. And within that, you've got research and development R&D, which is about uh, looking for innovative ways to make things, uh, uh, introducing innovations in products. Then you've got the whole marketing aspect of working out what it is that consumers want and positioning your products or services accordingly. And then you've got distribution uh, for raw products, not so much for services. And then you've got the ultimate sale. So all of that I see as a supply chain, but in a microcosm, the distribution bit, how stuff gets from the uh, factory gates to, to the shop, that, that if you like, is, is, is what people principally mean by supply chain. That's the kind of logistic side of it. Uh, how you get how you get those products out out to consumers, and the reason why I think it's important from a commercial awareness point of view is well, once you have that basic understanding of of how the things that you use in your life get to you, then it makes it much easier to understand a lot of other things as well. Because I think with commercial awareness and with the sort of things that we discuss in in, in this podcast, we're really trying to give listeners the building blocks to to understand not just for the purposes of of uh, interview, but but more generally, for for the, these are kind of basic life skills, understanding how the world works and how what you do fits within it. So that's why I think it's an important commercial awareness story. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, moving slightly to from the supply chain part of it to people, um, I think over forever really, but especially probably sped up in the last few years. There's been kind of a focus on how tech can um, can uh, do things more effectively, more efficiently, and of course, absolutely can. But do you think some of the stories that have come out in the business world over the last few weeks highlight maybe a need possibly to, well, show that people are so important, but maybe a need in some industries that people need to be um, valued higher in a certain way, possibly? I, I think so. I mean, it's very interesting about the impact of tech because that is the big kind of secular trend that, that we've had for the last 20 or 30 years and will continue for the next 20 or 30 years. And it's going to play an absolutely critical role in tackling climate change. But what I think is most interesting about this is that I think you, you get, speaking very, very boldly, you get two views of tech. One is that tech is going to rule the world and people are going to be irrelevant. Uh, and, and the other, which I subscribe to, is that tech is actually... Uh, uh, life enhancing in that it will uh, enable us not to have to do a lot of the things that we do at the moment that we don't particularly enjoy doing or don't find rewarding, but free us up to do a lot of other things which are rewarding and where our sort of intelligence and emotional intelligence are, are most relevant, which tech with the best will in the world will take a long time to, to replicate. So what, what I'm pleased about is that this highlights the importance of people and, and, and that, that, that's who we are. And it's important that people retain this, this central role in, in the way the world works. And so I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and shortages, you know, from baristas to drivers, uh, what it highlights is that when you don't have the people available, you, you have a bottleneck. And I think this, this 
importance of people in the workplace feeds through into everything from looking at education, you know, should we go down the uni route? What about the role of apprenticeships? Right across to, to national immigration policies, as well as uh, uh, one of the, the main uh, aims of government, which is moving uh, people from unemployment where they can work into the workplace. So I, I think what's good about this is that it does put people centrally, but what I wouldn't do, especially uh, if I were in the position of any of our listeners of a younger generation is worry that tech means that I'm going to be out of work in the future. I really don't believe that at all. Yeah, really, really good to hear. And actually, uh, Brighton ever did a survey on this about kind of worries of uh, worries of people and um, about jobs and whether they worry about uh, tech coming in and taking potential uh, opportunities um, from them. And it's actually about a 50-50 split. It was a very simple yes or no question. So there are definitely people out there uh, worried about it. So it's good to alleviate some of their worries, hopefully, on the on the podcast, well as giving them a bit of a uh, bit of knowledge around it when possibly talking about stuff like this uh, in upcoming interviews. But it is a real problem. Like the UK uh, economy is has shown signs of um, slowing sharply in in August um, due to predominantly staff shortages. There is a lot of pent up demand. We're all coming out. We all want to go to the pub. We all want to go to restaurants. You you know some people haven't been to their favorite restaurant for two years now, and it's kind of seen as a bit of a treat. And there's lots of stuff they want to buy because they want to get out there and you know all the way through. And we're going to be covering workwear in a bit as well, but. Um, you know, needing new stuff to go back to the office and all that sort of stuff. But if we don't have the people to be able to uh, service that demand, um, all of a sudden the economy doesn't pick up at the same rate that it needs to. And so this kind of supply and demand in the in the workforce needs to needs to um, find some equilibrium. Because uh, I think uh, as talking, we've spoken in the past around um, places to look for sort of knowledge and reports and stuff like that. But one of them, which is the IHS Markets uh, Purchasing Managers Index, um, is basically survey senior executives and comes up with kind of a score, which is the number doesn't really matter. It's just comparative, just how it compares to previous years, previous months, what uh, analysts expect. But um, they've definitely seen a, a massive dip, which they've um, um, really uh, focused in on uh, it being to do with uh, people as well. So I, I think uh, I think always always worth checking out stuff like that um, when you're looking at kind of wider economic health and uh, what's actually going on in the in the economy. But it's definitely causing a bit of trouble at the moment. My final question to you, uh, Chris, on this story is: so we've seen like Amazon have offered you know, extra or different work incentives for their warehouse workers. Um, there have been talks of huge salary hikes for lorry drivers. And I think sort of five grand bonuses talked about for people joining uh, certain companies. So I guess uh, this war for talent or this battle for talent is really intensified in certain industries. Do small companies risk missing out here because Amazon, such a huge company, can flex their muscles and drive people in, whereas a small business that's very tight, especially after the last year and a half, is going to struggle to be able to incentivize people to join their workforces or, or even uh, stay at their, their companies while big companies are more able to offer these uh, better packages. To answer that, just stepping back from this, what I think is interesting trying to look at this in general terms is that the most successful businesses over the last 10 plus years have been tech businesses. And they're very unusual businesses, historically speaking, because 
they don't require a, a, a lot of capital. They don't require plant and machinery. And the sort of people that they need are, are high, highly specialized. And what we've seen, I think, is a move away from the old days when you had unionized labor, when you had very large workforces on, on the factory floor. But also what's happened over the last 10 years is a feeling that um, the, the, the economic benefits haven't trickled down to the most in need in, in society. And so I think one of the good things about uh, the, the, the current swing towards uh, being more considerate towards employees is understanding the importance of people. And also, thanks to social media and, and the internet, consumers are now much more vocal and businesses are having to respond to that. So it means that I, I think, and this is, this is definitely an, uh, um, a trend that will continue, businesses are becoming much more responsive to various stakeholders in the community they, they operate in. But to, to get to your question about small businesses, I don't think so, because I think they offer a different employment experience. And one of the interesting things, I think, for um, the younger generation these days is that the options available to you in the workplace are very multifarious, they're myriad, and you can pursue lots of different types of career. You can work in big businesses, and you can work in small businesses. There are lots of options open to you. And I think where, where small businesses uh, uh, trump big businesses is that they, they offer the, the chance to work possibly more flexibly, to, to work locally, um, uh, to, to really know the management and to, to end up working with, with people that you know. And it's no surprise that large businesses that are successful break their teams down into relatively small teams. Um, I think the, the theory is that a team of, of maximum 20 to 30 people is optimal because that's a team in which you can get to know everybody. And that's kind of like a small business. So I, I don't think small businesses are at a disadvantage. Uh, I think they've got many other things that they can offer that make them attractive employers as well. Great stuff. Completely agree. As someone who's worked in small businesses for my uh, first sort of eight years of my career, I think uh, there are definite advantages. There are, of course, advantages working in those big corporates, and um, but it's definitely worth um, looking across the broad range of opportunities for graduates, uh, lots of opportunities for graduates at the at the moment, um, which is exciting after uh, definitely a, a tough year and a half. But um, as, as always, we're positive on this, uh, on this podcast, and there is definitely reason to be um, lots of lots of roles opening up in the in the new in the new application cycle, but also lots of stuff for those people graduate as well, which is exciting to see. Great stuff. We're going to leave that story uh, there. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll move on to our third story. The third story that we are going to be covering this episode of Thinking Commercially this month is all around taxation. And more specifically, our starting point here is uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement um, about a couple of weeks ago. Well, I think there was a lot of pre-announcements and there was leaks and stuff like that. I think the official announcement might have only been a few days ago, but it's been known for a couple of weeks uh, that um, there's a move to raise national insurance, which um, got a lot of uh, press attention, mainly because of um, you know the manifesto promises that he made about not raising kind of these uh, key areas of taxation, personal taxation uh, for, for people. And obviously it goes against that. And he's actually admitted that it do, does that as well. We 
don't really want to cover that. It's going far too into politics for um, for for this podcast. Uh, but what we want to do talk about is, I guess, national insurance, the implications around the government raising taxation, what that means, and more generally, what the maybe what the government's trying to do or thinking about uh, when it comes to bringing money in and obviously spending it on uh, the services uh, like the NHS, which we know and uh, and and love. So, if you haven't read much about this, the raise in national insurance is 1.25% from April 2022. So it's actually quite a quick in terms of it doesn't sound like it's that quick, but in terms of how things tend to move within government, that's actually quite a, a short um, time frame. And that is also for people paying in. So you, people that will have it taken off their, their wages, but also the employer on the other side will have to pay more to employ uh, people as well. Um, what is national insurance and why specifically national insurance um, is the government focus at the moment? It's a really good question. I think the starting point is that when you're in employment and you get your pay slip at the end of the month, you'll see that, that there are, that there are uh, uh, various deductions made and, uh, for instance, contribution to, to your pension fund. But two of the ones that you'll see are PAYE, which is, it stands for pay as you earn. And that's basically income tax that the government um, raises. And the other is NI, national insurance. Um, and what I think is interesting about this question is that um, in, in the UK, uh, the, the term here to focus on is hypothecation, which sounds a bit weird. Um, hypothecation is when it, it comes from uh, a, a, an old term meaning to to lay a charge on money. So you basically say this money is being set aside to do this. And in some countries, governments have hypothecated tax. So they raise a certain tax and they say, we are going to commit to using this tax for this purpose. National insurance came in about a century ago, very much with hypothecation in mind. So it was a tax raised on those in work by the government in order to pay for very specific benefits that the state provided. And these were benefits like um, unemployment benefit, maternity, uh, when you go off on on maternity leave during employment, disability, um, death, retirement, all of these things that affect your working life. National insurance, and that's why I think it was called that national insurance. It was designed to provide this safety net. And what's interesting about it is that we we have NI as a tax that's separate from income tax, PAYE, but we don't in this country have a hypothecated system of taxation. All of the tax goes into a central pot from which it is spent. And what the prime minister has said is that this national insurance raise will be hypothecated in that initially it's going to be uh, uh, devoted to helping the NHS reduce uh, waiting times and the impact of the pandemic. And then it's going to be devoted to uh, social care costs. So in a sense, what he's doing is is, uh, introducing a degree of hypothecation, which is probably more for public consumption because it's a way of helping people understand why this is being raised and what it's going to be put to do. And I guess with income tax, it's on a graded system. So the more that you earn in the top parts of what you earn, you pay more income tax. So you don't pay any income tax on the first 
about 12, 13,000 you earn, but after about 45, 50,000, you'll, you'll pay um, significant, significant chunk of, of that amount. But with national insurance, that system doesn't exist on every pound after a certain amount that you earn, you will pay national insurance. Yes, that's right. And then I, I think for uh, higher earners above uh, 50,000 or, or, or so, I, I think that there is a change in, in the way national insurance is, 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 is raised. But um, one of the uh, overriding concerns at the moment is, is why has the government done this now? Because uh, the impact of any tax raise, like the impact of any increase in interest rates, is that it tends to slow the economy down because it means people have got less money to spend in the economy. And generally speaking, governments don't want to do that unless an economy is overheating. Now, without diverting what we're talking about onto inflation, what is interesting is that these supply chain bottlenecks that we've experienced have increased inflation markedly for the short term. And one of the responses to inflation increasing, which is, as, as, as you know, the, the cost of everything going up, is to increase interest rates and or to increase taxation to cool it down. But the most of the accepted commentary is that this increase in inflation is, is short term. So I think essentially the reason why the Prime Minister has announced this now is because he's grappling with two problems. One is the long-term problem of social care, which several governments have said they would address and, and they haven't. And the other is the short-term impact of the pandemic. And so I, I think from a purely political point of view, he's decided this is a good time at which to do this because he's got sufficient time before the next election to make up whatever uh, lack of popularity this may engender in terms of, of, of um, uh, electoral polls to make that ground up when he goes into, into the next election. So that's a kind of political issue and political timing. But I think that is informed why the government has announced this now. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I don't want to focus, fixate on specifically what's happened in a couple of weeks, because as you know, with this podcast, we try and look at the wider picture uh, for all of these stories that happen at the moment to give you some context behind what's going on. So I guess the wider picture here is on how governments raise money. But also, um, more personally, the amount they probably spent in the last couple of years, and rightly so, to um, navigate through the pandemic, both from a medical point of view, but also a, a business point of view um, as uh, as well. So there's a suggestion that this raises, uh, I think, 36 billion. This 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 new new tax. Um, but looking at the wider picture, the government um, expects to earn each year about just over 800 billion um, pounds per year. Uh, but currently spending is um, over a trillion. So basically 1,100 billion. So we've got a significant deficit at the moment. Um, things like this feel like big changes. And as we've talked about a little bit, maybe the media hype it up quite a lot because they need stuff to, to write about. But broadly speaking, this feels reasonably small scale compared to the amount that we have spent and the um, amount of debt that we've um, accrued, not just through the pandemic, which has obviously inflated it, but over the last uh, decades as well. What I find interesting about taxation is that it actually, individual taxes actually do not raise a huge amount of money. And that 36 mm. billion figure is spread over three years. So I think the NI increase will raise about 12 billion a year, which in the context of annual government expenditure, of, as you say, Ben, between 
800 billion and a trillion. It, 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 it's really very small. And what's interesting about taxation is that when you look at it, governments don't have enormous room for maneuver because ta individual taxes don't raise a great deal in, in the scheme of things. And yet they have a dis disproportionate impact on, on government's popularity. And again, stepping back from this, governments only have two sources of money, They're taxation on the one hand, borrowing on the other. And in terms of the borrowing to meet the costs of the pandemic, that, that, that I think is generally regarded as very much long-term borrowing. And at the moment with interest rates so low, it's not a bad time at which to borrow. Um, um, uh, governments like the US are actually using it as a chance to reflate the economy, to, to counter the lack of trickle down, which I mentioned in, in the previous story, to try to ensure that, that the, the less well-off in society are being provided for. And over time, inflation will tend to reduce the, 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 the real cost of that debt and the, the, what the debt itself actually represents. So again, and I don't want to sound like, like you know, Mr. Cheerful all the time, but I think when you strip those things out, it's not as bad as it may seem. And, and the key then is, uh, how does government pitch taxation so it doesn't stifle business? And for me, that's a key question because business is crucial to government. Uh, businesses pay tax. Uh, they also provide employment employees pay tax. So government has a very symbiotic relationship with business. It wants to encourage it. At the same time, it sees business as very much a, a, a principal source of tax revenue for, for it. I completely agree with that point. But do you think with the this sort of taxation rise uh, that will be felt by employees um, and employers as well, um, do you think there could be a bit of a backlash between it or even the fact that it's a sort of a wider change of, of policy um, as well? Same with sort of business rates. There was some talk about post-Brexit, whether Britain could turn into very low um, business taxation uh, place to encourage more companies to come into the UK, which actually hasn't happened. If anything, it's going the other way. It's going, we're raising business tax at the moment. So um, is there any, because of this sort of, I guess, change of policy and this raising of taxation is there any risk that a businesses might look to do uh, more activity abroad or even just like individuals um, talented individuals thinking well i'm having job offers from across europe for instance or in different uh, jurisdictions um i might move there because um because i'm not paying quite as much tax that's a really good question ben and, and i think the starting point is is that there are some countries that have a, a very high tax stake. I mean, Scandinavia, for example, but there people's expectations of public services are much higher as well. They're happy to pay more tax provided their expectations are, are, are met. And so how, why would business want to uh, operate in a, a high tax take country? Well, those governments, they're, they're, if you like, their response to business is yes, taxation is high, but what you're essentially paying for is a better educated, healthier, happier, and more productive workforce. So I, I think at this, it's at this level that, that tax becomes part of national culture, as it were. And there's, there's no wrong or right, uh, whether you have a high tax country or a low tax country. But in terms of individuals and whether they move, I tend to see it in terms of what I call the international uh, CEO level. So 
Well, one of the traditional arguments that is made in this country about the high rate of CEO pay is that companies are competing in an international market for international talent. And a lot of that is driven by levels of pay in, in the States. I've, I personally, I've never quite subscribed to that argument um, because I, I, I see that as actually a basis for uh, that level of captain of industry to kind of level up to, to their own benefit. For the rest of us, are we going to be driven to work elsewhere because of tax in the country that we're used to working in? I, I don't think so. But across that, there's a further overlay, which I think is particularly pertinent to the younger generation. And that is that there's never been a better time to work abroad. I, I'm, I'm always amazed when I talk to, to, to students and young professionals, I'm always amazed at how international their backgrounds are, how they've um, gained work experience in many, many different countries and how their career aspirations are kind of borderless. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. I think that's absolutely brilliant. So does tax have a role in influencing people's decisions? Possibly, but to tell you the truth, I don't really think so. The fun and final story of this episode is all about the changing trends when it comes to how we work, but also what we're wearing going into the office. Um, this isn't a fashion podcast, but I am currently wearing sort of a very casual shirt in the office, some black jeans and uh, a pair of white trainers. I've got a, um, a beard, which probably needed a trim a couple of days ago, and um, definitely not looking like the image of sort of that 1930s. London where you saw people all clean shaven briefcases umbrellas with their with their bowler hats on and you know even over the last couple of years with the pandemic I'm in the office I'm looking out towards uh, the gherkin I'm looking out towards the city as as, as I can see um, but feeling across the board obviously in marketing probably a bit more casual anyway but across the board there's a definite feeling towards being that little bit more casual and having that little bit more flexibility across the widest range of sectors from ones that would have been been, you know, very much suited and booted every day, all the way through to uh, to maybe the more creative um, industries. Um, there is a lot of uh, data. I think Primark, you might have seen, um, uh, released some stats recently, very recently, saying that comfort wear was continuing to uh, rise or continuing to keep uh, up the rise that it had from the from the pandemic. Really interestingly, like I think there's been a lot of companies like uh, Charles. Uh, Tirrit and stuff like that, um, who have talked about the massive struggle during the pandemic, obviously, you know, suitors, Savile Row, of course, just behind Regent Street in central London, talking about uh, how people haven't really um, bought suits. But it was actually quite an interesting story that came out over the last couple of weeks, where is that they've seen uh, a huge increase um, just before September as people were starting to come back to the office, a lot of businesses were starting to come back, maybe even a couple of days a week in September. Um, but I think uh, as, a, as a nation, um, we've uh, maybe put on a little bit of timber during during the pandemic. And a lot of the old uh, formal wear that we, we had and that we will continue to need uh, maybe doesn't fit so much anymore. So I think um, some of these companies were seeing a sort of a 220% uh, rise in suit sales in week on week between sort of sort of mid mid August to sort of early early September. Um, but broadly speaking, beyond those kind of slightly um, more I guess amusing stories that you get pick up on across the across the business world, uh, it feels Chris that this sort of casual trend is is a little bit here to stay. Really, 
I think it absolutely is. And obviously, it, as you said, Ben, it, it's um, sparked in part by, by working from home during the pandemic. But I think that there's a more fundamental change, which I'm all in favour of. Um, in, in, in my day, um, when I was the age of our listeners, you know, you, you put on a suit, it was a uniform, you kind of changed into the presentable person at work and you got on a train and the, the uniform and the commute were basically a kind of no man's land between your, your life at home and your, your life in the office. And the two didn't really meet. And uh, we've been talking about tech from time to time in, in this podcast. And I think Steve Jobs was one of the first tech people who just didn't look like a businessman when he presented himself. And he had a uniform. He, he had um, a pile of roll neck jumpers uh, in his wardrobe so that when he got up in the morning, he didn't have to think about what he was going to wear because he always wore the same thing. And I think tech led to the way in that. And it's very interesting when you look at the ergonomic design of offices these days, uh, they're, uh, they're much more about creating open spaces, collaborative spaces where people can meet. And um, that, that has very much been driven by, by the world's media and advertising and tech. And that's now infiltrating rather more straight-laced professions. And I think that's all to the good. And it reflects the fact that in this um, continually connected world that we're in, uh, we're now available 24-7 in the way that in the old days, you're in the office nine to five and that was it. And, and outside those hours, you weren't at work. We're now available all the time. So if we're gonna be available all the time, we need, we need much greater integration between our work life and our life outside work, the, the old work-life balance. And I think the way we, we dress and are allowed to dress is very much an expression of that. And I think from an employer's point of view, if you've got employees who feel comfortable and uh, uh, they're, they're given much greater freedom in, in how they dress, they're going to be more productive because they're going to be happier. So I'm all in favor of this, this move to breaking down barriers between uh, different compartments of our lives and allowing us to dress accordingly. Yeah, I agree. I think this is part of a slightly um, wider business trend. I'm going to maybe go slightly more out there for 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 this one. But our CEO often talks at Bright Network talks about how business is a contact sport. Ultimately, you know, you want to be there, you want to be winning, you want to be, um, you know, getting at it sort of thing. Um, but I think you know, the, possibly the attitude towards it, of course, everyone still wants to win, everyone's still driven by profits, but there's this idea of doing it in the right way as as, as well, that there's a lot more public scrutiny on businesses that maybe aren't, you know, aren't doing it the right way, whether it's treatment of employees or um, their impact on the world, as we talked about the environment and stuff like that. So I guess this kind of idea of like social capitalism, but I think it's kind of tied into that sort of wider trend that people are investing money into, you know, maybe nicer offices where people feel more comfortable. People are putting out breakfast for people on uh, uh, sort of eight eight forty five in the in the morning for when they come in. They're doing flexible work, and ultimately, they've seen this trend that people can work remotely, which has very been abundantly clear over the last year and a half. Of course, there are certain things which need to be in the office. I think Microsoft did a survey um, recently saying that 
home working from home permanently reduces that creativity communication and teamwork but i think businesses have seen that benefit from the flexibility of allowing people to um to to work remotely sometimes and i think a lot of business will come back to the office but maybe not five days a week as uh, as rigorous as as it maybe was um pre um pandemic but i think even though it's, it sounds like we're just talking about how the fact that you know people have taken off their ties and undone their top buttons i think it actually has this wider um, implications for how business has has adapted and changed not just over the last um year or so with the we've come out of the pandemic which i think has definitely helped and people have seen some people may have seen the bigger picture at times and stuff like that but over the last few years as well and um i think that's uh, really positive i think it's probably a nicer environment to start your career in i would say so again being very positive on this on this podcast but i think uh it's probably uh ever so slightly less cutthroat still very driven by profit but um possibly a a nicer way to, to start your career what's your what's your thoughts on that chris have i just uh, waffled on about a load of random stuff or, or what do you think about that sort of things i think that's absolutely right i, I think the the fundamental relationship between employer and employee has changed and, and is changing and employers have to be more responsive to what employees want if they're to get the best out of them um, and again this is a, a massive change over that i've i've seen over my career and i think it's all to the good and 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 uh, i think it means that employees have uh, more chance to have their voices heard in how they want to work. And, and that in turn makes them feel uh, more of a, a contributing partner to, to the success of, of the business. And I, I think that is all absolutely to the good. Yeah, I completely agree, Chris. Uh, the one thing I want to cover off finally to sort of end this podcast is that we've got a lot of graduates, a lot of graduates who would have graduated in the last year and a half have probably been doing a lot of virtual interviews. I would imagine that, especially at these big companies, you'll start being going back to the office for at least one, your final assessment centre or, or your or your final interviews, meeting different members of the team, partners, whoever it, it might be, senior people in the in in the business. Um, I think there is a probably a little warning in there that if things have got a bit more casual, but it still is making sure that you are um, going smarter. Always go on the side of smarter and make sure that you are. Um, their dress there's still a big expectation in uh, in a lot of city professions especially um, and also if you're if you're a little bit unsure like you know asking the HR team if you have a couple of questions before an, an interview and stuff like that isn't necessarily the the worst thing but if you don't feel confident enough to ask or you worry definitely uh, go over smart and uh, definitely leave the leave the joggers leave the uh, sort of t-shirts and polo shirts and stuff like that at, at home and uh, and make sure that you're kind of suited and booted and, and and stuff like stuff like that you can always dress slightly further down in second interviews third interviews when you meet people based on what you see in the office and on your first kind of few days in the office um but yeah just a just a little word of warning that we thought we would uh, pop in there um because uh, i know we have been uh, very casual i've definitely been uh, very casual over the last year and a half but um it will start to return a little bit to how it was before chris i think that's all we're gonna have time for for this episode um hope you enjoy being back for the second series did it feel different did it feel new energy into it or was oh, it much great. the same it oh, felt really great good. i felt it felt yeah. really good it's good to be back What a fantastic way to kick off the first episode of the second series. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you're doing applications at home at the moment, hope you're getting lots out of it and those are going 
really well. As discussed throughout the podcast, we have got an Instagram channel and a LinkedIn group. Make sure you're checking out those for lots of information and insights around the episode. Other than that, until next time, have a fantastic month and see you again soon.